invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being the first Gospels. Um, And so you'll go eh, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way back to find the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 22, and if you saw already what was um, on the bulletin, this is generosity in finance. And this is one of those things where we can um, churches can sometimes get a bad rap for. As you maybe have heard the story, there is three passengers on a plane. All of a sudden, they realized that the pilot was no longer living. The plane was on autopilot, and there was no hope that they would be able to safely land. And none of the three had much to do with church or religion. They said, well, we feel like we need to do something spiritual. So they took an offering. This, of course, is the joke because we often get a little bit... Um, edged at church about talking about money. But the reason that while talking about generosity, for one, it's impossible to take money out of the equation of generosity completely. Now, this is proportional. This is not the only way that people give, and it's not limited to this. But it can't be totally removed from the equation. And part of the reason for that is because what we do with our money is profoundly spiritual. What we do with our money is spiritual. And how we spend reflects our priorities. Whatever your priorities are, they can be most clearly seen in your bank account, more than likely not, or the credit card statement. What we do with our money is spiritual. And if we pursue this virtue of generosity, taking Christ's example, finances is one of the ways that we have to take a look at But we're going through maybe a different text than what you might expect. And part of that is because I have some misgivings about people feeling guilted into giving money. But it should come from a desire simply to give to God what is God's. So before we read Matthew 22, 15 through 22, I invite you to pray with me. Come Holy Spirit and dwell among us and illumine your word to us that your word may be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our primary concern. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. Amen. As you hear these words from Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22, you're going to hear a particular tone of voice and mind, and that's just a reminder that the first mode of interpretation is how you hear or how you interpret the way things are being said. And so I'll add some of my own inflection and intonation on this. Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others, because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. 
Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Pharisees really are good at at creating traps for Jesus. They're good at it. They put time and thought and energy and effort into this mode of trying to catch Jesus in something to get him in trouble for. And this is another really good example. In a few weeks, we're going to start the season of Lent. And at the end of that, we know that Jesus was betrayed and put on trial and crucified. What's interesting to remember in a text like Matthew 22, 15 through 22, is that when Jesus was betrayed, that's not the first time that they tried to trap Jesus. It's only the first time that worked. Because Jesus sees these traps coming and always demonstrates wisdom when he does. And this is a good trap. The Pharisees themselves don't even go. They send their disciples And part of the reason is because the Pharisees have been hard at work trying to trap Jesus already in something that he says or does wrong, and it's not working. So with this trap, they send their disciples actually to give an impression of innocence. These aren't the Pharisees themselves. They're only their disciples. And also, I think the Pharisees are just sick of getting schooled by Jesus, and so they'd rather send their disciples and hope that they pull it off with their guise of innocence. But it's not just the disciples of the Pharisees that go. It's also the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the group of Jews that were very much benefiting from and pushing for the influence and meshing of Rome and the Jewish people. It works out well for them. And so the trap that's set before them with both groups present, with the Pharisees, who in the purest sense want a theocracy where they wouldn't have anything to do with Rome, just just us as a people. We used to be a sovereign people. We're not anymore, but we wish we could go back to the way it was. The Pharisees who represent that camp and the Herodians, the ones who are really quite happy to be enmeshed with Rome. And the question also stirs up some unfairness in the society. What's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, depending on what translation or addition um, you have, it might just say tax or imperial tax or Roman tax. That's because this is a specific type of tax that's being referenced. This isn't general taxes. taxes. This is the kensas, which is a tax that's levied upon occupied people. So Roman citizens don't pay this tax. This tax that's being brought up by the Pharisees and the Herodians is the tax that's only for people who are occupied by Rome. And you pay this tax, not only is it an economic hardship, but it's also a reminder that you're not an independent people. That you pay this tax to Rome, to a far-off distant leader, because you've been taken over and you are not your own any longer. Now, this is a problem, particularly for the Pharisees who wish that this was not so. The Herodians don't really mind. But the beauty of the trap is that if Jesus says, yes, it's okay to pay the tax, then he falls into the trap of betraying all of the Jews and that they would be upset with him for this. Because, after all, the money itself has an inscription on it that says Pontificus Maximus, 
referring almost to a high priestly nature of the emperor of Rome, and Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, because Tiberius is emperor at this point. The money itself is a reminder that there's some things that go against. There's, there is no other God. There's no divine one except for the Lord our God. The Lord is one. All of the Jews would know this. And the very money that they handle ascribes divinity to someone other than God. Therefore, if Jesus says, yes, it's fine to pay the tax, he would upset many people who would wish that they were no longer occupied by Rome, the ones who wished that the Savior, the Messiah, would come and overthrow Rome and release the Jewish people from Roman captivity. All the people that in Advent that we talked about that want that Messiah would be disappointed if Jesus said, yeah, it's okay to pay the tax. But if Jesus says, no, it's not okay to pay the tax, the Herodians are with on purpose because then Jesus could be charged for political insurrection. And above all else in Rome, what is guarded is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And you could do horrible things if it meant protecting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay the tax, he's a political rebel and therefore might be a threat to the Pax Romana and more than likely would be crucified for it. Now, we know that that comes eventually, but in a different way, betrayed through the lies of his own people. But this is one more trick that the Pharisees try that doesn't work. Because they need Jesus to say one or the other. If yes, you should pay the tax, you're betraying your Jewish heritage. If no, you shouldn't, then you're an enemy of the state. And both sides are listening in to see which one they can catch Jesus on. And Jesus, of course, as is his custom, not only outfoxes the trap, but doesn't flinch from any core convictions. Because when people come after Jesus, he doesn't go off into left field. He doesn't abandon that which he knows best. He zeroes in on his core convictions that he holds to most strongly. And we saw this already in the early part of Jesus' life when the devil comes to tempt Jesus and Jesus returns again and again with what? With Scripture. Jesus comes back to what he knows. And in the same way, here, when confronted with a trap, Jesus returns to core convictions and also core convictions that are shared with those who are around him, with those who are hearing the words that he says. And one of those core convictions is that Jesus would say, give unto God what is lawfully requested or rightfully due to God. This is tithing. Now, of the trap that's set, not paying Caesar's tax never turns out well, and neither does not paying the full tithe. For not paying Caesar's tax very well, uh, there was already rebellion not all that long ago in A.D. 6 when Judas of Galilee over this Roman-occupied tax, tried to lead a rebellion against Rome. And he got snuffed out, and a lot of people were killed because of it. And so, not that many decades have passed. That conflict is still fresh in the minds of those who are hearing this question, should we pay the tax? The one that Judas of Galilee led a rebellion about? Jesus, though, doesn't answer people's questions on the same level that they ask them. Comes back to his own foundation and so instead asks them with a request. 
Is it lawful to pay the imperial tax, the tax that reminds us that we're not our own people, the tax that goes to Rome or not? And Jesus, first of all, calls them hypocrites and notes to them, why are you trying to trap me? Even sending the disciples of the Pharisees didn't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes that he wouldn't have seen that this was a trap again because why else would the Pharisees and the Herodians be hanging out? They don't really get along. Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. I don't have a denarius, but they brought him a denarius, a normal form of currency, right? It'd be like pulling out a fresh, crisp $20 bill. Maybe a little more than that, but close. And as soon as they pull out the money, Jesus has already proved his point about their hypocrisy. And here's why. Matthew Henry, traditional commentator, mid-1600s to early 1700s, reminds us that the utmost hypocrisy of the Jewish argument from the Pharisees is destroyed as soon as they show that they're holding a Roman coin. Because they're using Roman currency. They say they don't want to pay the tax, they want to have nothing to do with Rome, but they're using Roman currency. They are getting the benefits of being a province of Rome. If you're a fan of Monty Python, The Life of Brian, there's a great little skit um, in that where there's a group of rebellions, a group of rebels that are trying to start a political insurrection against Rome, and the leader asks the question, what has Rome ever done for us? And of course, they all want to say, nothing! And instead, the little band of rebels sit there and they think, well, the aqueduct? Hmm. Okay, but other than the aqueduct, what has Rome ever done for us? Uh, sanitation. Clean drinking water. Uh, the roads. Roads are a lot safer now. We're actually a lot better off because of this. Okay, but other than the aqueduct, the fresh water, the sanitation, the roads, and the food, what has Rome ever done for us? And then, of course, they all say, nothing! Discounting all of the other things that they've just mentioned. They're using Roman currency. They are involved and enmeshed with the Roman economy. And they do benefit from it. And we, as Christians today, are actually thankful for it. Because we know from history and a touch of sociology that the fact that the Apostle Paul began his missionary work at the time he did allowed him to be more successful and mobile because there were roads that were safe. Because you could travel from one city to the other and not get robbed by bandits. Because all of these cities were connected. All of this happened because of Rome. And yet, it doesn't mean that we like it. It's kind of like they asked Jesus, is it legal to drink coffee at Starbucks, teacher? And Jesus said, show me your punch card. And they said, I'm two drinks away from a free latte. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. Although I don't think they have punch cards anymore. I think they have apps now, which is really disappointing because you never got spam emails from punch cards. But if I were a first century Jew, I would be impressed by Jesus' response. I also would be a little bit disappointed because maybe I wanted to hear a teacher say, no, you don't have to pay that tax anymore. It's unjust. It's unfair. It's economically oppressive. That's what we'd want to hear. And so we'd walk away a little bit disappointed, but also convicted. Because part of the brilliance of Jesus' response is he's reframing that this is not all about you. Though you'd maybe want the revolutionary Jesus for the political insurrection, Jesus has already addressed hypocrisy and doesn't 
make what we pay and don't pay about what's convenient or beneficial for us. And instead, with the inscription of Caesar and all of the ascription to Tiberius being divine, with that coin right in front of them all, the implication of hypocrisy clear and apparent, Jesus instead says, Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, Roman taxes were collected by mean scumbags like Zacchaeus, who was not a nice guy. They could be taken advantage of. Caesar's taxes were taken that way. But as all of the original audience for this conversation, and as all of the people who read Matthew's gospel in its early days, primarily first century Jews, as they hear this dialogue or as they read it, It's also striking a different tone. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, Caesar messes around all the time with how much tax is being levied. But when Jesus said, give unto God what is God's, that's actually incredibly clear to all of the first century Jews who would be involved in this conversation. They would know exactly what Jesus meant. Because Giving unto God what is God's has been spelled out for us in the Old Testament throughout Leviticus, but it starts actually in Genesis. In Genesis 14 is the first example that we ever have of a tithe. This example of a tithe, literally just meaning one-tenth, of a tithe being given. In Genesis 14, Abram has defeated Kidderleomer and rescued Lot, and and then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And we're told in Genesis 14, verse 18, that Melchizedek, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The first example of a tithe started with Abram started with Abram giving a tenth of what he had to Melchizedek. This is the first example of a tithe. And so all of the unfolding of the law, especially in Leviticus 27, always is pointing us back to Abram, the patriarch, setting the example of what a tithe was, giving a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek. Now, it goes on. One thing to note for us as we think about tithing is we, if we consider that giving a tithe is to give unto God what is God's, sometimes we can view it in strange ways. Like maybe tithing is a way to get rich. Like if I give God a tenth of my money, then God will make me really rich. But Abram already has set the example that tithing was never meant to make you rich. Because after Abram gave his, tithe, gave his tithe, his tenth, to Melchizedek, The king of Sodom, who had also been rescued from Kidderleomer, said to Abram, Give me the people people and keep the goods for yourself, meaning all of the plunder that Abram took when he defeated Kidderleomer. The king of Sodom says, You know what? Keep it all. But verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkel, Mamre, 
let them have their share. Tithing was never about getting rich. Abram didn't give a tenth to Melchizedek and then find an opportunistic way to actually become wealthier than he was before. Tithing, as a spiritual practice for us, is one that teaches the habit of generosity, that we give unto something different than ourselves. Tithing is a habit to build the virtue of generosity. And full disclosure, sometimes it's like, okay, pastor, do you tithe here? Yes, we do. There are pastors who don't tithe to the churches that they're installed in. Caitlin and I believe, actually, that it makes sense to tithe here because it's not just the minister's salary that a tithe goes to, but considering also the tithes and offerings that we bring supports over $65,000 of mission shares all across the world. It supports our programs. It supports all of the other local mission work that we do. And so, yes, I think it's good and, f- and right and fitting to tithe here. And the practice of tithing teaches generosity. Generosity is a virtue. And sometimes it's a far-reaching virtue. It feels like, well, that's for other people to do. But the practice of giving something, even if it's not the full tithe, is one that shapes and reshapes us by habit to give. And to give without withholding. Later today, Caitlin and I are getting together with my cousin Aaron. He's a very generous person and always has good food and and He's kind of a foodie, so he finds very fascinating things. And one of the things about Aaron's personality is that he is generous. He always wants to bless. And sometimes I think he's a little bit lavish, but that's because I'm cheap. I think tithing is important, but I think I can be really thrifty everywhere else. But as Jed mentioned last week, tithing is about not withholding. And one of the ways that we simply practice that is by giving something. And it's not, to give, it's not to make us rich. It's not to somehow increase our wealth by tithing. But it also is an expression of trust. That when we give, we are trusting God to take care of us. That maybe, as I've heard this conversation here before, in some ways tithing doesn't make sense. And yet somehow it just works. Some of you know the name Howard Dahlman, child of the Depression. One of the things in Howard's memoir that he wrote about was they committed to tithing. And it always worked. It's not a recipe to get rich, but it is a habit of expressing trust to God and also practicing generosity even in a small way. And it's not about the amount. It's not about the gross sum at the end of the day. But giving unto God what is God's is an issue of the heart. Tithing doesn't make you rich. But it does make you particularly blessed in the experience of practicing generosity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about three key practices, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. We have no problem telling people to pray, but almost harder to tell people to think about fasting or almsgiving, almsgiving starting with the tithe and then the generous giving portion on top of that. Prayer doesn't seem to have much sacrifice, yet it could, and I hope for Lent, We think about praying like we've never prayed before, that even our prayer life feels sacrificial, that we consider a meaningful fast, something that we give up, and that we consider almsgiving, tithing, and then whatever is on top of that. 
It's the origin of generosity. Jesus talks about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, all as core practices. And this is the one that teaches generosity the most clearly. Certainly we, t- certainly we are generous in heart and therefore in time, talent, and treasure. But it can't be separated from treasure in a way that somehow this one's completely separate and different. What we do with our money is profoundly spiritual. And that's how we practice it. The tithe is also meant to be a benefit to the community. This is why Malachi chapter 3, one of the minor prophets, says it this way, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. When the people are being called to account for God, tithing comes up. Beginning at verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? The Lord responds, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? The Lord responds, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only instance where Scripture notes God saying, Test me. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. There will be abundance. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty." Test me in this. I will pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, part of the tithe of the storehouse was essentially the first community food bank that ever existed, that there would be enough for the people that each one shared. And that's why it's a tenth. It's not a flat rate. It's about equal sacrifice, not equal giving. It's not the amount, but it is the heart and spirit with which it is given. And so the tithe, established by Abram with Melchizedek, is carried out into the law and one of the first practices that people abandon, that the prophets call them out for. Because it wasn't just the loss of the people that they got to keep more, it was also the loss of the community, that the storehouse would not be full for those in need. Generosity was taught by tithing, a high virtue. And now... We consider the next phase of where we're at. Even as we think about this text, giving unto Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God's. In the Christian blogosphere of all kinds of different writings and everything else, I recommend you follow Pastor Audrey for more interesting things because I don't ever share anything on social media. One of the big questions is, will charitable deductions go down since the standard deduction is increasing? And the result is, Probably not, because people who already tithe just already do. And, nationally speaking, that's not many people to begin with. It only changes if instead of us following the idea that Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, it only changes if we morph that into give unto God to get a receipt from Caesar. Now, 
full disclosure, I really like our receipts. I use envelopes for tithing, and I like the building statement because I do want that. In some ways, we're not that different from the Pharisees who are holding Roman coins. And yet it's not about what we're getting out of it, but hopefully what we're giving is because we care about what we're giving to, because we see it as a place to invest, not financially, but spiritually, and because we believe in what we're giving to. We want our contributions noted for tax purposes, but also it's not that concerning because it should be a matter of giving in our hearts and what we want in generosity. There was a Gallup poll done with uh, Christianity Today and the Evangelical Credit Union not long ago, and they estimated that of churchgoers from all of their data, 7.4% of professed churchgoers, those who attend regularly, are tithing 10%. So less than 10% would be giving 10%. And yet, even of that number, there's a huge mark of generosity And this, of course, was answering the question, is tithing only for rich people? Is that virtue left just for those who can give a lot? It is if you're following worldly math. But it's not if we're considering what habits and virtues am I building? What am I doing with my money that reflects what my priorities are? I hope we give because we're practicing generosity or because we believe in the places that we're giving our money to. And that's not just church. I hope building contributions are made because we believe in the vision of the space and that we can steward that space well for ministry and for changing people's lives. I hope that's the case, that we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, whether it's convenient or whether we like it or not. We give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and we give to God what is God's. And that in so doing, we test God in this and see if it works. Generosity is a virtue for everyone to practice in some form or another. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. And see what happens. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, in worship we come to you to offer our hearts. We pray that our hearts and our lives may be offered with generosity, not withholding, but giving freely and giving because we trust you and because we care. Not giving foolishly, but giving wisely. And not giving with fear, but giving with expressions of trust. Lord, I do thank you for the generosity in this place, for that which we have done together for over 160 years because of the generosity that you have planted among us. Lord, for that which we can accomplish together and for the trust that we build in putting our trust upon you. Lord, allow us to be generous in the ways that you have called us to be, that we may give unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.